Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Good evening, everyone. It's a delight to be here. I'm nearly at the end of this uh, Irish tour. I was uh, 10 days in Israel and then came here, and I've been here now all week, and I'll speak here again in the morning, and then uh, tomorrow night, I think, at Elam Church with a leader, just a leader's meeting at Elam Church, and then Monday, home to the most beautiful woman in the whole world to whom I've been married for 52 years. 52 years. It's been unbroken joy for me, and she's had two or three minutes of happiness, too. It's <laughs> Well, uh, you're a jolly crew, and uh, I can tell that the Lord is with us tonight. I'm, I'm not going to speak on that topic. I, I hope you'll give me indulgence on it. I really felt led to go in a different direction tonight, so I want to I speak tonight on... Uh, I took your theme, Awakening, or Awaking, and uh, I'd like to speak tonight on Awaking to Grace. Uh, so if you brought a Bible with you tonight, if you'll take it and turn to the book of Zechariah, the book of Zechariah. It's an, uh, unfortunately, it's an infrequently read book uh, by uh, modern Christians. In fact, it may be that you don't even know where it is. If you start at Genesis and turn right, it's going to be a long drive. So go to the book of Matthew and turn left, and you'll come to it faster. Um, it, it's a, a brilliant book full of very powerful uh, linguistic imagery. Um, and uh, it is replete with um, prophecies about the Messiah. It's, it's a powerful little prophecy. I love the book of Zechariah. So I'm going to begin reading in the fourth chapter of the book of Zechariah. I'm going to uh, begin reading with verse 6, just a few verses. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. Are you there now? Then he answered and spoke unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Now, let me just pause as I read through. I'll give you a few little things in the scripture. Zerubbabel is an Old Testament type for Jesus, the prince of restoration, during the restoration, the rebuilder. So Jesus, the prince of restoration. This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Now, mountain in prophetic writing, may mean all kinds of things. What it almost never means is mountain. It, it can mean a force or a dominion or a power, like a, a kingdom or a dynasty or something like that. So who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain. So let me give you the revised Rutland translation of that. It would read something like this. Who do you think you are, geopolitical forces of the present age? Who do you think you are, kingdoms and, and tyrants and armies? Who do you think you are? When Jesus shows up, you'll be as flat as a tortilla. <laughs> Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. 
Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. Now, if you'll put your hands on your Bible. Nowadays, when I say put your hands on your Bible, you put your hand on your phone. So, if you'll put your hand on your Bible and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here with us indeed and that in waiting upon you we find strength. And now, Lord, I pray that you would brush aside every barrier to divine communication, linguistic, generational, national, and rush in over the threshold of our souls. Enter in by your might into the inner person of everyone here. And when we leave here tonight, we will say one to another, Surely the Lord has spoken unto us. In the mighty name Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen. Amen and amen. I was, uh, I was not raised in a Christian household. It wasn't a bad household. It wasn't violent or drunken or something. Uh, my, it was one of those sort of nominal Christian homes twice a year. We, it was not... Uh, um, it was a Methodist home, United Methodist, and my family went two, three times a year to Methodist Church, Christmas and, and Easter and that sort of thing. Uh, but there was no family Bible in the home. We didn't have family devotions or something like that. It was, a very, it was basically a secular home, a good, moral kind of secular home. Secondly, it was a wee bit odd. Uh, my, my family moved all the time, all over the United States. Uh, my dad was never one of those people that was unemployed. We didn't live out of a car or something. He was always employed. He was just frequently employed. And uh, we just moved. So sometimes we would move into a town and we would just uh, stay in a motel. And he'd say, we'll only be here five or six weeks. I've got this one job. And we'd live in a motel and go to the school there for a few days. I went to five different schools in the first grade. And uh, we lived uh, constantly. I went to average about three schools a year uh, growing up until we went to junior high school. I entered into a relatively sedentary period of my life. I only went to three junior highs and two high schools. So it was, uh, it was quite a, a, a ride. Furthermore, my parents were eccentric people. My father, God rest his soul, uh, my father lived to be uh, 94 uh, he died two years ago at 94. He was a combat veteran of two wars. He was a paratrooper in the Second World War. And then between wars, he switched to armored cavalry. And my dad was a tank commander in Korea and fought in combat in two different wars. A tough guy. Yeah, he believed until he was 94, he believed he could run you down and kick your butt. <laughs> he couldn't, but he thought he could. My mother is still alive at 94, and she can uh, my parents were uneducated. I was the first person in my family ever to go to college and uh, on either side all the way back, but uneducated in the formal sense of the word. My parents were wonderfully educated, self-educated. Uh, my mother probably has as high a native IQ as anybody I've ever known in my life. She has a functional vocabulary that would uh, make William F. Buckley jealous. She, uh, she's magnificently well-read. She can walk through a field of wildflowers and tell you their Latin names. Um, when we were growing up, my mother used to say, the way we live, you're going to have a hard time getting educated. But she said, if one can read, one can learn anything. 
And uh, I, I don't even remember learning to read. I could read completely when I started the first grade. I, I don't even remember learning. I'm not sure my mother ever taught me to read. I think she just willed it. Uh, was anybody else here raised by a ferocious she-lion? Do you know what I'm talking about? And uh, my mother, when we go to a new town, my mother would take a plastic laundry hamper and go to the local library and just fill the hamper up with books. And she'd come home and just distribute them to all the kids. And she'd say, read that. And she'd say, next week at the dinner table, I'll expect your report. And you couldn't fake it because she would have read it. So uh, it, was, it was really something. We didn't have a, we didn't have a family Bible. So at night, we didn't have those as you do with your home. We didn't have the gathering where somebody would read the Bible and pray. She had a family dictionary, a huge Webster's Collegiate. And sometimes at night, she would just take that huge dictionary and call the kids around the dining room table, and she'd flop that dictionary open. And like a racing form, she would just put her finger in, and whatever word it landed on, we had to learn that word. And when I use the word learn, I use it advisedly. I mean learn it. We had to learn its etymology, how to spell it, if it was a verb, how to conjugate it, its synonyms, its antonyms, how to use it in a sentence. I deeply resented these dictionary devotionals. <laughs> I, I can remember thinking I'm in the third grade <laughs> exactly how will I use the word quintessential. I, uh, I talked to a guy the other day. He told me he was raised with a drug problem. He, he was drugged to morning church, then he was drugged to night church, then he was drugged to Sunday school. And, and, uh, and he, what happens in families like that, this guy usually says, as soon as I'm out of this house, I'll quit going to church. But then, as soon as he has children, he drags them to church in Sunday school. So I can remember sitting in these dictionary sessions and thinking, as soon as I'm out of this house, I'm going to become an illiterate. <laughs> but instead, what it leaves one with is a deep appreciation for words. That words mean things. We, we think in words. When a when a culture or a society suffers the loss or diminution of its vocabulary, to a certain extent we lose our ability to think because we think in words. We don't think in pictures. So what can happen is we can have these deep emotional feelings, but without the words, we, we, we can't express them, and it can actually create cultural frustration and anger. Because we can feel things we can't express because we can't think them. I'll give you an example. The little fifth grade boy who thinks the brown-eyed girl next to him is the cutest thing he's ever seen. And he wants to tell her, I really like you and I wish you'd be my girlfriend. But he can't think of the words, so he punches her in the mouth. <laughs> that can actually happen in a whole society. The second problem is words get hijacked by contemporaneity. The m modern life changes words. Everybody here under the age of 35, raise your hand, raise your hand. No cheating, no cheating. I'm watching you. I, I spent some time with him last night and I knew. No, if you're under the age of 35, raise your hand. Will you do that? 
All right, I want to tell you something. There are words that you use right now that by the time you're my age may not mean the same thing. It may not even mean the same thing. There are words now that I used as a young boy when Queen Victoria was still alive. And there are words that I used as a young boy and I can't even use them now because they don't mean the same thing. I wonder if there's anybody here who's old enough to remember when gay meant happy. Do you remember that? I want gay back. Uh, What about at Christmas? Don we now our gay apparel? That does not mean Christmas in drag. Um, When I was a kid, gay had to do with disposition. It didn't have anything to do with orientation. And uh, other words, here's one. I was preaching recently in California, which is evidently where the English language will be destroyed. And I was speaking to a high school audience, just kids, and they were so taken with the message. I don't know when I've ever preached such a positive response. And afterward, I was talking to a group of boys, and the first boy said, Dr. Rutland, you are one bad preacher. In my lifetime... Bad has come to mean good. The second boy said, you're not just bad. He said, you're the baddest preacher I've ever heard. Baddest is not even a word in the English language. The third boy said, you are not bad. He said, you are one sick dude. One can only sense my level of personal affirmation. I remember early on in my career setting a sort of a life goal of being a really sick dude. The fourth boy was altitude compliments. He said, you are not bad. You are not sick. He said, you are the OG of crunk. I have no idea. I teach, uh, in the United States, I teach a lecture at the National Institute of Christian Leadership. And some years ago, a young man came through who pastors a hip-hop church in West Florida. So I figured if anybody would know what the OG of Crunk was, it would be Tommy. So I called him and I said, Tommy, if somebody called me the OG of Crunk, what would that mean? Oh, he said, Dr. Mark, that means the original gangster. OG means original gangster. I said, so I'm the original gangster of crunk? He said, yes. I said, okay, see, what I'm trying to get is what does that, like, mean? He said, oh, oh, oh. He said, it means you be the Mac Daddy. I said, okay, Tommy. See, uh. What I was hoping for was more along the lines of a, of a definition. I, I, I was hoping you could sort of explain to him, what is, what is the original gangster of crunk mean? He said, Dr. Mark, I'm trying to explain it to you. It means you be off the chain. I just decided to leave it alone. So when that happens to any word, There is a certain level of tragedy attached. But when it happens to our functional biblical vocabulary, when it happens to the words with which 
we think about and therefore talk about God. It may be that we think we are communicating or thinking clearly, and what we are thinking and what we are saying to one another may be actually completely off track simply because we have lost the meaning of the words. Some years ago, I used to preach in uh, Urban Crusade, an urban outreach in a really, really bad neighborhood of Minneapolis, Minnesota, called it the Minneapolis Soul Fest. We'd set up huge banks of uh, you know, big uh, platforms and then big banks of speakers, and the kids would blast their music out about nine decibels above the level where all the birds in the air dropped dead. And <laughs> we'd, get to, we'd get a big crowd up, and I would preach, and it was great. One, the... Uh, the platform would be about like this, this tile. So when people came forward for the invitation to get prayer, the prayer workers would just kneel on the apron of the platform and pray with them and then give them material. One girl came right here, right in front of the pulpit, and nobody saw her. She just put her forehead over on the edge of the platform, and her hair fell down beside her head. And so I just knelt down there. And I said, Miss... Would you let me to pray with you? She never looked up. She said, yes, I need help. I said, do you you want the Lord to come in your life? She said, Mr., I I want it. I want what you preached. I said, all right, pray with me. She never looked up. I said, pray with me. Heavenly Father, she didn't say anything. I said, Miss, what I want you to do is hear the words that I say and then repeat them. Are you ready? She said, I'm ready. I said, all right, say this. Father in heaven. She didn't say anything. And I said, honey, what's wrong? And for the first time, she lifted up her face. And this eye was swollen completely shut. She had horrible purple bruises across her cheekbone like fingers. And her little lip was split till I could see her front teeth. Tears streaming down her little battered face. She said, you know, mister, I've got all the father I can handle. And I realized she had absolutely no resistance to the concept or reality of God, but it was going to have to be warped around her misapprehension of fatherhood. Now here's a word in the book of Zechariah, which has come to mean almost everything in the body of Christ and therefore has come to mean almost nothing. And that word is grace. We use grace like agape mayonnaise. If you slop enough of it on, it'll make rancid ham taste good. What does grace really mean? What does it really mean? It's probably just me, but I, I was, frankly, when I found this passage, pretty shocked to find it in the Old Testament. Am I the only one? I always think of the of grace as being a peculiarly or perhaps totally New Testament reality. That the Old Testament was about law and the New Testament was about grace. So when I found this powerful image of grace in the Old Testament, it made me want to pay attention. So the picture is of this. It is of us on one side of a huge mountain. We are on this side. We know that we're saved. 
Jesus is on the other side of the mountain. We know we're saved. If there's any verse of scripture that is important in the Protestant community, it's this. Salvation is not by works, lest any man should boast. It's by faith through grace, and that not by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. In other words, even the faith to believe for salvation is a gift of God. The problem is, in quoting that verse, we see salvation, we see Grace as the salvation event. So I get saved. I receive Christ as my Savior. My name is written in the Lamb's book. My sins are under the blood. Now I've had grace. I'm saved. Now I've had grace. Grace is the event of salvation. Now I turn and this mountain looms between me and my Savior. I know he saved me. But what I want now is a face-to-face, intimate encounter with him. I want to know him and him to know me. I don't just want to be saved. I want this mountain out of the way so that there he can build. Moses said, I will build a tabernacle where I will meet with you. Where I will meet with you. But that mountain has to be removed before that tabernacle can be built. And I want it out of the way. So I take possession of the mountain. I'm going to remove that mountain. Shoulder to the wheel, nose of the grindstone. This year I'll be a Christian if it kills me. (laughs) The only problem is what? It'll kill you. That will kill you if it doesn't put you right in a religious loony bin. (laughs) Rocking back and forth in a straitjacket and humming Jesus loves me. Because you cannot move that mountain. You do everything you can. Finally, that's the reason that some people, everybody in this room knows someone who won't go to church. And they'll give you all kinds of rules. I don't like church. I don't like the preacher. I don't like this. I don't like the music. I don't like that. Do you know why they won't go to church? They are deeply aware of the mountain in their lives. Whatever it is, it's different in every life. It can be a habit, a bondage, a fear, loneliness, hurt, hate, bitterness, unforgiveness, drugs, alcohol. It can be something in every life. They're aware of the mountain in their lives, and in a kind of twisted idealism, they say, I won't go to church with that mountain in my life, so I'll just stay away. Others, more religious folks, take a different approach. They drape the mountain in camouflage. They enter into denial. They drag the mountain behind them like a ball and chain draped in camouflage. And we enter into a mutually agreed upon covenant of suspended disbelief. We meet each other coming in the front door of the church, dragging our mountains, and we say, do I have a mountain? Nay, brother, thou hast no mountain. (laughs) What about me? No mountain there. Let's go to church. So we sing the worship choruses, and in the air spiritually above our heads, a veritable sierra of mountains, undealt with, untouched, unmoved, but denied. Others, and thankfully, this is most of us, we hit that mountain so hard, so long, and finally we just collapse at the foot of the mountain, defeated and bruised and broken, and we cry out to the other side of the mountain, 
Lord, are you over there? Because I can't move this mountain. And I quit. Do you hear me over there? I quit. What do you have to say to that? And what we think is that from the other side of the mountain, we're going to get a tongue lashing. Because we have projected over onto Jesus the face, voice, and personality of our high school football coach. So we think he's going to yell, you big fat sissy. If you can't play in pain, you can't play on the Jesus team. So hit that mountain again. I played uh, American football in high school. Um, I dreaded practice more than any game we played because the coach's son played on our team. I don't know if you know enough about gridiron, American football, to know. He played offensive running back. I played defensive back. So when he came through the line, if he got past the first line, it was my job to bring him down. And he came at you all helmet and knees and demons. And it was horrible. I hated trying to tackle Bobby. Finally, I said to him, Bobby, what is up with you? You're not the biggest guy I've ever tackled. You're not even the fastest runner on our own team. Why is it so hard to tackle you? He said, come home with me after school. I was shocked at that. Nobody went home with Bobby. Not only was he a vicious and lethal football player, he was a vicious and lethal human being. As far as I knew, Bobby didn't have a friend in the world. I went home with him after school, and he went into his garage, and he had one of these pull-down roll-top metal doors. Do you know what I'm, a metal garage door? He pulled it down like that, and he said, there's your answer. And all across that metal garage door, it looked like somebody had been hitting it with a sledgehammer. He said, when I started the sixth grade, my football coach dad put a football helmet on my head, made me bend over at the waist and run into that garage door head first. I hit it every day, 365 days a year, birthday, Christmas, Easter, New Year's, no exceptions, every year. And any day I didn't hit it hard enough, my dad would hit my legs with a braided whistle strap and say, hit it again harder. He said, you know, you run into a metal garage door 365 days a year for five or six years. He said, a 158-pound cornerback just doesn't look like much. No wonder he was a vicious runner. No wonder he was a vicious human being. That's child abuse of the worst order. A father forcing his son to attempt something that they both know is impossible forcing him to hit it over and over and over again. And all that frustration piling up in the psyche of an adolescent male, and then that father focusing it on the opposition on the football field for his glory as a coach. Is that your Jesus? If that's your Jesus, then your Jesus is my devil. Who stands behind us with a braided whistle strap of Protestant works righteousness and lashes our legs. Pray better, fast more, sing better. It's, all, it's terrible in the ministry. It can lash us in the ministry. Build a bigger church. Preach better. Win more people to Jesus. And we're just running from the lash of the legalistic Jesus. 
and we completely lose grace. So we fall at the foot of the mountain and we cry out to Lord, are you over there because I quit? But instead of the tongue lashing from the other side of the mountain comes something we never expected. Good! That's what I've been waiting on. Stand back. And then, one of the only places in the whole Bible where it says Jesus shouts. What does he shout? Does he shout, do better. Follow the rules. Work harder. Pray more. In fact, he doesn't. He doesn't shout at us at all. He shouts at the mountain. And what does he shout? Grace! Grace! And the mountain melts like wax. See, the liberal humanist will tell you that grace means God doesn't care about the mountain. That he nudges the angels in the ribs and winks and says, well, boys will be boys. But that condemns you to the destructiveness of sin. The legalist will tell you that grace means God wants you to get strong enough to move the mountain. But that dooms you to failure. It says it right here. It is not by might nor by power. You will never get strong enough to move that mountain one centimeter. You'll never even make a dent in it. But it will dent you. God is a gentleman. You want to run at that mountain? He will stand right on the parapet of heaven with the angels at his elbows and watch you back up and run into that mountain. And he'll say, well, here he comes again. Oh, he's that boy is going to hurt himself. Here he comes again. Oh! God, that's going to leave a mark. But when you cry out, I quit. I quit. I give you the mountain. I surrender the mountain to you. Now God takes possession of it and the operation of grace not just saving grace. See, if we compartmentalize grace to salvation, it turns grace into an event and not the process of liberating life. When we take possession and responsibility for the mountain, can I coin this phrase? It disgraces us. It degraces us. It ungraces us. And it makes for graceless living. Graceless churches, graceless families, graceless marriages, graceless people. You cannot give away what you don't have. If the, if the hard knocks of running into that mountain and the frustration of not being able to overcome the bondage in your life drains the grace reservoir out of your life, you will be graceless to everyone around you. There are graceless churches. Churches that are just filled with anger and gossip and bickering and fighting and criticism. I never, I don't know what happens. It, they are disgraceful churches. I was a pastor of a huge church in Orlando, Florida. Mega church, seven, eight thousand people. And when one person is mad at you in a church of 8,000, you think it won't matter to you. It matters. You feel it. 
So I preached one Sunday, Pastor, under what I felt was some level of anointing. And I was shaking hands with people, and this guy came up to me. He was so angry that he couldn't even talk plain at first. I, at first, I thought he was talking in tongues. He was so, he came up, he came forward. He was so angry, I thought his head was going to split open. He said, well, I'm leaving the church. I said, you are? Why? He said, because of the lie that you told in the pulpit today. I said, what lie? He said, you talked about a certain battle that happened in World War I, and you said that battle happened in 1917. He said, I happen to be something of an expert in American military history, and I know that battle didn't happen until early 1918. He said, a man that lie about a thing like that would lie about anything, and I'm leaving. I said, well, bye. <laughs> I mean, adios. I cannot fix that for you. That is disgraceful. That's disgraceful. We just nitpick at stuff all the time, just criticizing. It's too hot. It's too cold. I don't like that. What's the matter with this drummer? My God. You, ever, you know what I'm talking about? Let me tell you about another man in the same church, though. Oh, I love this guy. He's still my friend. Still my great friend. An attorney in that same church. He came to me after every Sunday morning sermon, every Wednesday sermon, every Sunday night sermon, every time I preached, all the years I was at that church, after every sermon, he came to me and said, oh, pastor, that's the greatest sermon I ever heard in my life. I, I, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. I know at a cognitive level, I know nobody can preach the definitive Christian masterpiece three times a week. I know that. But I like that lawyer lying to me. When I came out of the pulpit, I was looking for that attorney. I know what some of you are saying. We can't do the pastor. Oh, you don't know what he's like if we pump his ego. We can't do that. Go on and pump. There'll be some mean old lady in the lobby with a pen. She'll pop him. After 50 years in the ministry, I've come to believe that the entire race of Christianity is divided into only two tribes, pumpers and poppers. <laughs> a pumper church is a grace church. A pauper church is disgraceful. It's disgraceful. We, we not only disgrace our pastors and disgrace our churches, we disgrace each other in families. We disgrace each other. I was the president at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Several thousand students. One day a father came to see me and told me who his son was. And I, you can't know thousands of students. But this boy I happened to know. He was in the music team. He was a leader on the campus. I said, oh, I know your son. He's a wonderful boy. I, I just think the world, he said, yeah, 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 that's not why I'm here. I said, well, why are you here? He said, I'll tell you exactly why I'm here. I want you to make him take that earring out of his ear. He said, I hate the sight of that earring. Every time I look at him, it's all I can see is that earring. I said, sir, listen to me. I'm trying to tell you something. 
That boy is a Christian presence on this campus. He is a leader. He is, he is a wonderful young man. You have a gift there. He said, don't you think I know it? I know it. But he said, I can't see anything but that earring. So the next day, I called the boy in the office. I said, yeah. do you know who was in my office yesterday? He said, yes, I know. I know why he was here. He wants me to take the earring out. I said, man, he was wound up. He said, it's standing between us. It stands between us. I said, isn't that stupid? He said, it's stupid. It's just stupid. I said, how horrible is it to let an earring stand between you and somebody you love? He said, I know. Isn't that horrible? And he said, oh, I know what you're doing. <laughs> he said, why, why can't my father overlook it? I said, listen to me, son. One of you is going to have to be an adult, and I've met your father. <laughs> I said, if you can receive the grace of God to remove that earring, not because there's anything wrong with it, not because it's sin, but because it's standing between you and your dad, you may grace that relationship in a way of which your father is not capable. And i got to tell you, I don't know when I've ever been so proud. That boy took that earring out, laid it on the coffee table in my office. He said, I'll never wear it again. That's grace. That's grace. We disgrace, we disgrace our marriages. We live in disgraceful marriage. We nitpick and criticize our children. Husbands and wives, where, where are the, all the married men in the room? Let me see the, all the married men. Wave your hand. I've got to listen to Dr. Mark. I, I'm going to the airplane on Monday. I'll say whatever I want. <laughs> but your wife comes in wearing that new dress that she bought. She says, look what I bought. She's modeling that dress for you. She doesn't want you to peer over the top of the sports page. How much did that cost? It set me back. I'm going to take your credit card. She's modeling that dress for you. She walks, she said, look what I bought. She wants you to throw that newspaper aside and jump to your feet and say, whoa. Whoa, baby, look at you. You look like a million bucks in that dress. Mm. You wear that on Wednesday night. And we're going to be late to prayer meeting. Now that's what she wants to hear. That's grace. When I leave for one of these trips somewhere, my wife puts her little hands on my face right before I go out the door. And she says, oh, Mark, you are the handsomest, sexiest man I've ever seen in my life. Look up here. I live in the real world. But a lawyer and a wife who both have enough grace to lie to you, that's a blessing from God. You know, the worst thing is, worst thing is not just that we disgrace churches and we disgrace the pastor and we disgrace each other. You know what the worst is? We disgrace ourselves. 
We live in self-critical self-analysis. We judge ourselves. We look into the full-length mirror of our self-analysis and we loathe what we see. We despise ourselves and speak to ourselves negatively all the time. We say, look at you. What happened to you? Where did your hair go? And whence cometh this fact? Superficial things. Not just sin, yes, sin, bondages, weaknesses, but we judge ourselves. You know, here's a verse of Scripture we've always taken to mean other people. Judge not that ye be not judged. We, th- we thought that meant don't judge anybody else. It means you also don't have the right responsibility or authority to judge yourself. Do you ever hear people say this? Maybe you've said it. If you've ever said it, you'll never say it again. Do you ever hear it? People say, I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. You ever hear that? Listen to me. Who do you think you are? I mean, who do you think you are? You think you're a more righteous judge than God is? You think you can see you better than God does? You have more authority and more power to judge you. If God Almighty still won't judge you, who who do you think you are? You're living under condemnation because it's self-condemnation. It's self-condemnation. So, it's the little it's the little foxes that spoil the vines. See, this, if you don't know, this is not real. Christianity. This is not real. I've never committed a really venal sin in church. Have you? This is church. I'll tell you where it's real. Tuesday morning, 8 o'clock in the morning, it's raining and cold and you're late to, late to work and you rush out to your car and slam your hand in the door of your car. That's real. That's real. You know what you can do? You get oh, 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 Ford, I'm getting an attorney. Ford Motor Company's going down. They're going down. <laughs> or you can more likely blame God. Well, you've done it to me again. <laughs> this is what I've come to expect. <laughs> or... You can blame yourself. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. (laughs) Or you could lift that mangled paw aloft and say, grace be unto thee. You not only have to give your husband a little grace and your wife a little grace and your kids grace and the pastor, oh God, he needs grace, and the church... You have to give yourself some grace. You have to give yourself some grace. You surrender and keep surrendering and keep surrendering every single day. That galling, sneering mountain, that satanic fortress that stares down at you and says, you'll never get the victory. And you say, I will, because I'm not fighting. I will have the victory because grace owns the mountain. Grace owns the mountain. 
jolly crew. I'm going to tell you the funniest thing that ever happened in a church. I'm not just I've been saving this for Ireland. Here it is. You do know the funniest stuff in the world happens in church, right? You're not living in that level of denial, are you? And the funniest churches in the world are spirit-filled. You do know that, right? I think it ought to be a requirement for ordination in the spirit-filled world. Do you have a sense of humor? Yes. All right. We'll ordain you. Well, here it is. A friend of mine who pastors a Pentecostal church in the United States invited a certain evangelist, not me, another evangelist, to preach in his church. And he had one of these ladies in the church, one of these self-proclaimed prophetesses. You know, they're the only people that can hear from God. They've all got the red phone to heaven. You have, any, you have any, you know? Oh, we'll send you some. Into every life a little rain must fall. So she came to the pastor and said, The Lord has revealed to me this evangelist is not supposed to come. The pastor said exactly what he should have said. He said, Well, the Lord hadn't revealed it to me. And until God speaks to me, he's coming. You don't have to be here. I'm not asking for your affirmation, but he's coming. She wouldn't leave well enough alone, would she? They never do. The first night, the evangelist got up, read his text, started preaching about five minutes. And that mean old lady stepped out in the center aisle, lifted up her hand and pointed her finger in the evangelist's face and said, Whoa, thus saith the Lord, thou thinkest that thou art a humdinger. But thou art not a humdinger, saith the Lord. Thou art a dinger. <laughs> I said, my God, Pastor, what did you do? He said, Dr. Elton, I froze at the controls. He said, nothing in life had prepared me for that moment. And he said, I couldn't think of what to do and I didn't do anything. He said, it was the evangelist that saved the day. He looked at her a moment. And then he just laid his head over on the pulpit and burst out laughing. <laughs> and then a lot of laughter over here and a little laughter here. And then the musicians started laughing. That's usually where the trouble is right there. And then and laughter in a church will feed itself. And it's just laughing and laughing. And if, after a couple of minutes, that old lady slammed her Bible shut. And when, when she got under the exit sign, she lifted her hand up and said, I'll never darken the doors of this church again. The pastor said, Dr. Mark, it was the hour of deliverance. <laughs> Here, here's the thing. There's some things in life for which the only emotionally mature, psychologically balanced, and spiritually authentic response is a good belly laugh. There's some stuff in life that's funny. There's some things about you that are funny. We can all see it. And you need to get in on the joke. Well, that old lady was right about one thing. She was right about one thing. Do you get these people that always want a word from God? They rush up to Usually after I'm on Christian television in the United States, that brings out the loonies. And... I'm in an airport somewhere, and they always rush up to me with this deer in the headlights look, and they say, Dr. Rutland, do you have a word for me? I always want to say, yes. Read your Bible. But everybody always wants a word from God. So that old lady was right about one thing. Look up here, everybody on this section. Look right up here. 
Thus saith the Lord, Thou art not humdingers. Thou art dingers. Over here, look up here. Thou, thou art dingers too. You all look up here. You need this, Pastor. Look up here. Thou art dingers too. The Lord says, Thou hast done dinger stuff. Thou art not finished. But, saith the Lord, I see thee in thy dingerness, and I love thee just the same. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Praise God. Isn't that wonderful? I don't have to spend the rest of my life trying to convince you I'm a humdinger. Free at last. Praise God Almighty. Free at last. I'm going to help you. I'm going to free you up. Are you ready? I want you to turn to the person next to you. Mm, Not your spouse. Um, Somebody on the other side. I want you to turn to them, look them in the eye, and I want you to say, I'm not perfect. Go on, say it. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Cat's out of the bag. Isn't that wonderful? Now I'm going to really, now I'm going to really shock you. Turn back to the same person and say, I already knew that. Go on. You see, nobody believed you anyway. Grace, it is truly amazing, isn't it? It's the wonderful power of God to remove that mountain and to keep lubricating our lives inside and out. If we don't have to live in all the hurt and hate and bondage and fear that everybody's going to find out about the wound because I'm a subject of grace flowing in me, flowing out from me, makes us gracious people, gracious people. I'm going to close with this been very patient. What if, what if you read the whole Bible for the first time? You didn't know anything about God. And you'd, somebody just gave you a Bible and you read right through. And your hope is just beginning to be built up. You read about it and you come to the last line of the Bible. The last thing anybody says to you is really important. Really important. What if you come to the last line of the Bible and it says, I hate the bunch of you. Is it just me? Would that feel a little discouraging? No, I'm I'm serious. What if the last line of the Bible was, I hate you all? Thus saith the Lord. Wouldn't that be terrible? Or what if it said this? What if it said this? I'm I'm going to let some of you come to heaven, and some of you I'm going to send to hell, but I'm not going to tell you which ones or how I choose. That's scary, right? But you come to the end of the whole Bible and God says, look, I've been saying this to you from the Garden of Eden. 
I've said it through the law and the prophets. I sent my son. I sent the word, the apostles, the epistles, the New Testament, the church. I've said it over and over and over again, and you just won't hear me. So here's my last word on the subject. And the New Testament ends. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. God, am I the only one in this room that that likes that? Isn't that wonderful? The grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. All the time. All the way. All the way. I believe that the greatest truth in Scripture may very well be grace. And we've made it into something so small and tiny that it's a miracle anybody ever gets healed. The healing flow of grace says, I love you. I know everything there is to know about you. I know every dirty thought you ever thought. I know every wicked motive. I know every nasty word of gossip you ever told. I know your past. I know you better than anybody ever will ever know you. And I know you better than you know yourself. And I still love you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Not to leave us in sin. Not to abandon us to deal with the mountain but to take it and remove it himself. How does that passage in Zechariah end? The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation. His hands also shall finish it. That's the New Testament. I could I read that passage. <laughs> he who hath begun a good work in you also will complete it. God's doing a great job on you. I can see it from here. I can see it. He's doing a great job. He's not going to leave it half finished. 